0: Well, if you could keep your Bibles open to that passage, that would be great. We'll be going through that tonight uh, for the next 25 minutes or so. If we haven't met, my name's Des. It's lovely to meet you. I'm one of the student ministers here. And you've come uh, in number three of a four-week series entitled Jesus Talks Tough. Uh, Jesus is a guy who is full of surprises and although the general kind of hallmark card image of him is kind of meek, mild, uh, uh, sort of a soft kind of a guy... There are definitely elements of that in the scriptures and yet we see that at other times he's a guy who doesn't pull punches at all. And we've been going through over the past sort of three weeks and we'll do it again next week, uh, looking at one of those instances, looking at some of the harder things that Jesus says. Uh, Because they're hard, let me pray for us now. Dear God and Father, we, uh, we thank you for the fact that we can know Jesus. We thank you for the fact that we can know you through him. We pray that we might not uh, divide him, we might not pick and choose from the things we like and the things we don't, but rather that we would accept all of him as Lord and Saviour. We pray even more that you would mould us in his image, that we would desire to look less like us and more like him. Amen. Well, I don't know what your experiences of evangelism are like. I don't know whether you've uh, had an opportunity to do much Uh, or whether you've seen it done on a large scale by a church, by a small group or whatever. One of the things that might have struck you as you're doing evangelism, as you're telling people about Jesus, is the very mixed and sometimes surprising responses you get to it. Sometimes you get people who you barely tell them the gospel at all and they just seem to get it and they're almost falling over themselves to believe You can kind of stumble through, you know, kind of two ways to live or some kind of gospel tract and, you know, give some, to your ears, very lame answers to their questions and fully expecting them to walk off, they kind of say, oh, actually, you know, I'm up for that. And then you, kind of a bit surprised, not really knowing what to say because you never expected this to really happen, kind of bumble on. But they seem to accept really easily on the merest evidence. On the other hand, sometimes you'll see people who are quite the opposite. People who, over a series of months, years even, will have the Gospel uh, clearly and articulately, intelligently presented to them. People whose objections will be answered in a sophisticated and yet sensitive way and yet for all of their knowledge and for all of their understanding, they reject Jesus. They don't believe in him. They understand it all. They're just not up for it. Now, the question that sometimes arises in my mind when I see these these two different kinds of people is why? Why should the Gospel, if it's the power of God to save people, why should it work in this way? Surely people hear it and they believe. Now, of course, in some extent, the answer is in free will. People can choose to believe or not to believe. And the Bible says that. So in Matthew eleven 28, don't bother turning to it, I'll just read it out to you, you've got Jesus saying in what I think is a genuine offer, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Make a choice. If you come to me, I will give you rest. Or conversely, in John chapter 5, just a chapter before the one we read, in verse 40, he can say this to people who reject him. These are the scriptures, the Old Testament, that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. People have got a choice. They can decide to come to him or they cannot decide to come to him. But I don't think that goes all the way to explaining why people respond the way they do when they hear about Jesus. Because if we zoom out a little bit and think about what those responses do to our ideas about God, it's a bit more complicated than that. Because if it's up to people to choose or not to choose Jesus, then that seems to handcuff God to an extent. God has provided a way for people to be right with him. He sent his only son Jesus to die on the cross, to take all the blame for the sins they've done and all the punishment that they deserve. And yet on this account, if it's just up to us, well, hypothetically, no one might ever respond. Everyone might say no. And then God's plans would be... Frustrated, which would make him somewhat less than sovereign. And yet if God is by definition sovereign, then how does it fit together? It makes it even more complicated given the fact that not only has God given this rescue plan, but in ages past, as we see in the Old Testament, he promised to do so. I'm going to save you. He said that to Abraham. He said it to Moses. He said it to all the people down the line. He said, I'm going to save you. And yet if human beings have the power to say no well then how can God come good on that promise? How can I say to someone, I promise to make you happy, when it's not within my power to do so? You see, there are times, aren't there, when we see the Gospel go out into the world when it seems to fail, when it doesn't seem to work, when it actually seems that God isn't coming good on what he said he would do. And I think we see the same kind of scenario here with Jesus. Jesus, in John's Gospel, has been going round and proclaiming the kingdom of God. He's been healing people, he's been showing amazing signs to testify to what he said about who he is and he's saying that he will be the person who will come and die for the sins of the world to reconcile them to God. And we see the biggest sign so far just at the very beginning of this chapter. We didn't read it all out for the sake of time, but in the beginning of chapter 6 we see a big one, the feeding of the 5,000 from not very much food at all. He takes a packed lunch and turns it into the biggest reception you've ever seen. Now, you'd think that people would be mightily impressed by that. Most people will say, look, if God showed me a miracle, I'd be on board. I'd be there. Well, these guys, they saw the mother of all miracles. They saw it was like sizzlers, but on a massive scale. But without the food poisoning. 5,000, you would think they would believe. And yet... Look at verse 25 to 26. When they found him on the other side of the lake after he'd left from there, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. You're looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Don't work for food that spoils but for food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you. On him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. You see, they see an amazing sign and yet they still don't believe. In fact, they think the most they can get out of this guy is another free lunch. That's what they see. They see, guy makes 5,000 loaves out of nothing. I see, free meal. That's hardly belief. You'd think that in some ways Jesus' mission has been a failure up to this point. What has he done wrong? Has Jesus failed? Why, when the Gospel is totally clear to these people, do they not respond? I think the answer when Jesus comes to it, is the difficult doctrine of predestination. That is, that God has simply chosen some people to respond to Jesus and and not chosen other people. Now, that is a difficult thing, the doctrine of election and grace. And it's hard for us to think about and will be hard for us to think about tonight. Before we get into it properly, let me give four caveats. Firstly, I've only got 25 minutes. If I were to give you a really comprehensive survey, if I were even capable of that, it'd be fine. We'd be here till Thursday, you'd be asleep and you may well have found yourself you got the sack when you returned to work. So I can't do that. We'll try and cover the main points. If you want to ask me a question afterwards, I'll try and bumble out an answer. But 25 minutes, we can't cover it all. Secondly, not only is it a complicated issue, this is a sensitive issue. It's a sensitive issue for lots of people, both for people who believe in predestination and those who don't. Uh, In the first few years of my being a Christian, I certainly didn't believe it and I got really aggravated when people tried to tell me about it. It was something horrible. It seemed to me to paint God as this awful despot and I didn't want to think of God that way. We've got to be sensitive in the way we speak to one another about it. We've got to be sensitive in the way we deal with one another. Thirdly, I want to stress... This is not a gospel issue. It's not an issue of people who believe in predestination are Christians and those who don't aren't. And we shouldn't divide over it. Two famous preachers from the 18th century, George Whitfield and John Wesley, could not have had more different opinions about this idea. George Whitfield was as staunch a Calvinist as you could find, possibly more staunch than Calvin himself. He definitely believed that God chose some and not others. John Wesley believed just as passionately in the absolutely opposite direction. John Wesley died and one of Whitfield's followers asked uh, uh, Whitfield whether or not he thought he would see John Wesley in heaven and Whitfield said, no actually I, I don't think I will. I don't think we'll see Wesley in heaven because I suspect that Wesley will be so close to the throne of God and I'll be so far back that in God's brilliance I'll not even be able to see his silhouette. It's not a gospel issue. You can be Christians and not believe it. But fourthly and importantly, don't let that get in the way of you reading scripture as it actually comes to you. I want to say and I think the Bible says that the doctrine of election is not only an unnecessary evil or not only a sort of a necessary evil rather but actually a doctrine of absolute comfort and glorious assurance for Christian people. It is a wonderful thing without which the Bible makes very little sense. So, I've just got two points for us tonight as we come through it and they're pretty straightforward. The first is this, everyone God gives to Jesus comes to Jesus. And the second is anyone who God doesn't give to Jesus doesn't come to Jesus. First point, everyone God gives to Jesus comes to Jesus. Turn with me to verse 35. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you you have seen me and still you do not believe. He restates the problem that has been going on all along. They see his amazing signs and yet they still don't believe. Has his mission failed? Does Jesus think his mission has failed? Well, look with me at verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never Drive away. You see, for Jesus, people's rejection of his message doesn't spell the disaster. It doesn't spell the end of his message. Rather, he understands, as no one else has, that ultimately it is up to God whom responds to the message of salvation. We can look at it in just two points. First of all, look at this. God gives us to Jesus. Now, it seems so obvious and yet we need to dwell on it. It is God who gives us to Jesus. God is the actor. We are passive. To put it crudely, it is almost like we are so much freight being given from God to Jesus. And it's not just here that he says it. John 17, I can read the bits out to you, is full of this language of God giving us to Jesus. So, look at 17 verse 2. For you granted him authority, this is Jesus praying to his Father, for you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Or verse 6, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Verse 9, I prayed for them. I'm not praying for the world but for those you have given me for they're yours. Verse 24, Verse 24, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. God gives us to Christ. Now, if we're given to Christ, those who believe in him, in a way that others aren't, on what basis? Because we're wonderful people? Does God look down and say, They're a good sort, I'm going to give them to Jesus? He's a great guy, for sure. No, no, no. Uh, God made that decision before we did anything. In fact, the Bible says that God chose people who follow Jesus before the creation of the world to do that. So in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, he can say, let me read it to you, these these great words. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. God chose us before we'd done anything, before the creation of the world, before anyone had done anything and we were destined for it. It is God who gives us to Jesus and the initiative is with him. But secondly, and look at this, we've got to get this, look at this. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. My parents have got a thing which you may have or your parents may have as well. It's called a present drawer. You can probably imagine what the present drawer is for. When they get a nice present, they keep it. When they get a present they don't like, they whack it in the present drawer to give away to someone else. Now, they're no fools, my parents. They're not going to get caught out by accidentally giving that present back to the person who gave it to them in a somewhat uncomfortable scenario. They get out the label, they whack it on and say, right, that was from Bill, thank you very much, Bill. I'm sure someone else will, you know, absolutely glory in your generosity to me. (coughs) Unbeknownst to you, you'll be, you know, making someone else very happy. That's the kind of gift. You get the gift, you go, oh, I really didn't want another money box. You know, I'm a grown person, I have a bank. So, I'm going to give that away. They give it away. But when, G- when God gave us to Jesus, Jesus is never going to send us away. Jesus is going to hang on to us. There's no re-gifting with Jesus. If God has decided to give you to Jesus, Jesus is never going to let you go. Let me say those words to you again because I think in the dark hours of 3am when we're wondering and tossing and turning whether God really loves us, it is important for us to hear. Jesus will never, ever drive you away. You can stomp and scream. You can doubt. You can rail against him. You can ignore him. But if you have put your faith in Jesus, ultimately, Jesus will never drive you away. What are some of the implications of all this? Well, let's deal with a possible objection first. Doesn't, you might say, all of this God deciding who's in and who's out, doesn't it make us robots? Doesn't it actually make a mockery of free will? Now, I think the Bible's answer is complicated, but I think that's because reality is complicated. I think the Bible says that God can decide something and humans can still have free will. That's what philosophers call compatibilism. I think they can actually go together. And I think we see that actually in everyday life. It would be totally ridiculous for me to say that I am totally free in everything I do, that nothing external to me affects me. I didn't choose where I was born. I didn't choose when I was born. I didn't choose my family. I didn't choose everyone who's around me. When I moved to the new city and I came here to church, I didn't sort of handpick the congregation that could come around me. I didn't choose the gifts I've been given. I didn't choose the peccadillos and the faults that I've got. Any number of things I didn't choose, they are determined for me by the world around me. I'm not totally free. Of course there are things determined for me. But do I think that that in some way makes me less than free? That when I decide to lift my right arm in some way that I'm less than free in doing it? Of course not. I'm free. Freedom fits within a worldview in which other things have an effect on me. God has chosen some people. But they still choose freely. We're not robots. But secondly, if that's out of the way, the fact that God has chosen people is surely a sign of incredible comfort. Astonishing comfort. Because sometimes I'm never 100% sure if God accepts me. There are times when I think how could God accept me? how could he possibly be happy with me? Or maybe I'm more subtle than that. I think to myself, well, I know God doesn't accept me on any basis other than my faith. I know that I've got nothing to offer God and only trusting in him can I possibly be right with him. But do I really trust him? Do I actually trust him? Or am I just pretending that I'm trusting him? Tell me you people have done the same thing at one time or the other. Have I really ever done that? Do I really trust in him? Has he really saved me? But you see, Jesus will never let me go. I might let Jesus go. My faith will waver. My faith does waver. Just because I'm speaking up the front doesn't make me immune from that and I'm sure just because you're down there doesn't make you immune from that. It's just part of the human condition. We do waver. We get angry with God. We wonder what on earth he's doing. And yet Jesus will never let you go. I cling to him with the last thread of faith that I have and wonder if he's hanging on to me. But then I read something like this, or something like 1 Thessalonians 4-5. to How do I know that God's chosen me? For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. I know God's chosen me, because I know that I've put my trust in him. There's none of this, oh, do I really believe? No, no, if you put your trust in him, then you're chosen. Jesus will never let you go. Which brings me to my second and much shorter point. That not only does everyone whom God gives to Jesus, Jesus never drive away, but negatively, no one whom God doesn't call can come to Jesus. You see, when we read verse 37, it leaves it open, doesn't it? All that the Father gives me will come to me. Now, that doesn't mean, when you look at the sentence closely, that uh, other people couldn't come to him, people whom God didn't give to him. Maybe they can come in through the back door. And so we see when the Jews raise objections along these lines, Jesus says, stop grumbling about yourselves, Jesus answered verse 43. No one can come to me, unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. You see, Jesus makes it clear that although anyone whom God gives to Christ, Christ will never drive away, that only those people whom God calls to him will Christ keep. Now, it sounds harsh. Of course it sounds harsh. It seems harsh because... If God is really loving this world, why doesn't he choose everyone? Why is he so gracious to some but not to others? Isn't it unfair that God would choose me but not my friend? It can seem terribly unfair. But perhaps this illustration will help. Think about a naval boat. that comes up to assist another boat in distress. The boat is going down fast. There's a big crack in the middle and it's sinking. The lifeboats have gone out but there are not nearly enough. People are in the water and the water is freezing. People are going to die unless the rescue mission gets underway very quickly indeed. And the captain of the ship that's afloat, that's come to rescue, saves some but not others. It's not that he doesn't have the power to save them all but he just chooses some. Now depending upon the circumstances we'll either think that's fair enough or ghastly. Let's say the boat that's sinking is in fact the Titanic. That a boat comes along and willfully chooses only to save some but not others even though it's within its capacity to do that. That seems awful. That captain seems crooked. And that's sometimes how I think when we don't understand the, you know, the full implications of what's going on here, that's how we think about God. Why is God so fickle and arbitrary? Does he do it just almost to make a point. But what if the boat that it was sunk was actually an enemy aircraft carrier? An enemy aircraft carrier that had actually spent the last five months chasing the rescue boat around, firing attacks at it. And then as it sank after the torpedo went in, the sailors in the sea continued to attack the rescue boat but a man, just as the bow sank, still manned the machine gun, firing volleys of tracer bullets across the rescue boat's bow. If some are saved, do any of them deserve it? None of them deserve it. In any normal military, they'll all be machine gunned in the water. It would be astonishing if the captain of the rescue boat saved any. And yet he saves many. He does leave some but it's a totally different scenario, isn't it? We think of the captain in a totally different way and I think that's what we need to understand here with the Gospel. You see, we are not innocent passages on the Titanic being rescued from our circumstances. No, we are enemy troops firing volleys at God. The Bible says that human beings have taken all the good things that God has given us, friends and family, material possessions, education, work, We've taken all of the good things that God has given to us and said, thanks very much, but I'll take it from here. Thank you very much, but I'll take all these good things you've given me and accept no responsibility to you. I'm going to live my life, thanks very much, and I'll live it my way. The Bible says that that is what we've done and the Bible has a name for it and that name is sin. We have rejected God. And have been busy firing volleys back in his direction ever since we were born. We've taken all the good things that he's given us and rejected him. Most of us, including myself, have barely lived you know our lives with any regard for him. Now we're the people in the water from the aircraft carrier. Can I say anything to God that you deserve that I deserve to be picked up? That I deserve to be rescued or that he deserves to be rescued? No, all of us are in pardon the pun, the same boat. We're all in trouble, we've all rejected him and none of us deserve to be there. If anyone ever came to rescue us whom we've been attacking, that would be not callous to choose. It would be, If any one of us were saved, that would be amazing grace, wouldn't it? Astonishing mercy. A person who puts their own life at risk, in fact, even goes to die so that their enemies might be rescued. No election, God choosing some. It's not fickle, it's merciful, it's gracious and it's amazing. Because let's face it, who of us in our sinful state of rejection of God would have chosen God anyway if he hadn't chosen us first? The Bible says that sin has got such a pervasive effect that not only have I rejected God but I've even rejected my knowledge of him. But it's not just part of me that doesn't like him, but another part that secretly hankers after. No, no, all of my being is infused with it. All of my being is infused with the desire to go my own way and not follow him. So if that's the case, what part of me is going to say to the other parts of me, come on, let's go back? We here on Earth send space probes out into the solar system to take photographs of Saturn, Neptune and Saturn and Pluto and out further into the reaches of the cosmos. The laws of inertia say that once it's off, it's off. Once that probe's going in a straight line, unless it gets affected by some external force, nothing will turn it back to earth. It will continue to accelerate in a straight line off into the distance. In fact, it would take an external force, like getting trapped in the gravitational field of a planet because it gets swung around in its orbit and flung back to earth forever to return. And the Bible says, although not as crudely as that, that in some ways we like that. We're all going away from God. We're flying away at a million miles an hour. Every single part of me. My satellite dish can't say to the transponder, come on, let's go back because it's moving away at exactly the same speed. No, I need an external force, but not gravity, but rather for God to catch me in his orbit and fling me back to himself. You see, it couldn't be any other way, could it? It didn't have to be this way. God could so easily have let us go our own way and yet because of his ultimate love for us even when we had rejected him we're firing shots over his bow he said you are mine I have chosen you I'm giving you to my son so that even though he has no good reason to he will die an agonising death so that you can be right with me It is utterly gracious that God would consider my estate at all. And yet that's what he's done. I could never have chosen him if he hadn't chosen me first. Thank God for the sacrifice that he gave for us. Thank God that he would do that for me, who have never paid him the slightest attention until he called me back to himself. That's the offer Jesus puts. It's a real offer. It's a genuine offer. He appeals to your will as free people. Come back to him. He gives you the bread of life. That's the point of this passage. And if you want him, I promise you he will not reject you. But as you come to him, don't ever come to him thinking that, he, that you deserve it or that you owe it to him. We really don't. He gave his only son so that we might be right with him. He made it possible for us to come back. I am convinced that if there is any God in this universe who is worth worshipping, it is this one who would die not for his friends but for his enemies. And Christians, we must pray for this world, mustn't we? We can convince and we can do apologetics and we can be funny and we can do any number of things but unless God does the turning they will never see him. We just see it in practice. We see it in scripture. The human race is rocketing away from God at a million miles an hour and need never return unless God return them. We must pray for them. As you're thinking of your friends to invite to Are You OK? Why don't we pray for them? Pray for your families. Pray for your friends. Because God desperately longs for them and wants them to be right with Him. Why don't we pray now? Dear God and Father, we, we thank You that even though we have no good reason to ever be loved by you, that you shower your grace on us, that if we have faith in what you have done, we can know for sure that you have chosen us, even though we never deserve for it to happen. We just thank you for that. We pray, please, help us to live our lives in gratitude for that. We pray for those who don't know you, who have no way of knowing you, We pray, please, work in a supernatural way in their life that they might actually come to know you, that they might hear the gospel and be saved. And we thank you for the enormous comfort it is to us when we feel feel shaky, when our faith seems weak, when we don't know what you're doing. We thank you for the fact that even though we regularly release you, that Jesus never lets go of us. Please, have us take the unspeakable comfort of your election. And rather than worry about it, please help us to be thankful for it. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.